Invention is done in segmented steps, and one leads to the next one, the next one, completely different inventors. But it, it just seems to be the way it happens. The mouse, Doug Engelbart invented that. Something that simple. You can say who the inventor was. But, you know, if Al Gore invented the Internet, you know, so did I. From Palo Alto, California, Silicon Mines. I'm Jason Lopez. Before there was a Silicon Valley, park, or even transistors, there was technology research going on in Palo Alto. Earl Jones of the Stanford Research Institute on Silicon Mines. If you've ever taken a drive on Interstate 280, one of the beautiful drives in the Bay Area, you've undoubtedly noticed the big satellite dish on a hill near the exits to Palo Alto. Simply known as the dish, it was built by the Stanford Research Institute in 1966 and has been used for projects for the Air Force and NASA and is still used for research today. It's also an emblem for the historical importance of the region as a place to innovate. Earl Jones is a part of that legacy. He pursued a life of innovation and problem-solving for some 40 years at SRI, and he retired in the mid-1990s. Today, the organization is known as SRI International, which does research for other organizations and companies. It's one of the largest contract researchers in the world, doing research in just about anything technological from medicine and biology to computing and engineering. In his career, Earl Jones dreamt up technologies, and he rose to become lab director, leading teams of innovators. I have about 12 or 14 patents, something like that. Most of them are co-inventions. You know, I wasn't just out wandering around in the woods by myself. Uh, I was sitting in a, in a room with a coffee board with my feet on the desk and thinking, why don't we do this? You know, and somebody else says, yeah, and we could do this and this, and it comes together. And then when you file the patent, you put my name on it and his name and her name, and, you know, so uh, it becomes a joint. I think every patent I have, uh, maybe as a couple of exceptions, has uh, it's a co-invention with, with other people. What are some that you find yourself running into, you use, you see here and there? Tell me what that's like, and what, what are some of those? Well, I think I have about a dozen, and... Uh, Sometimes they just go away. I mean, they, they, you invent something, it never gets used, and, and that's kind of, kind of the rule and not the exception. Um, in 1981, uh, our lab had developed a uh, handwriting recognition system for, the, for Asian languages, for Chinese and Japanese. And this would, and you can imagine, say in Japan, for example, we have 26 characters uh, and 10 numbers and some special symbols. So a keyboard is perfect for us. A, key, a keyboard with 40, 50 keys is ideal. In Japan, to get out of high school, you need to know 2,000 characters. It's called the kanji, the joyo kanji. You need to know 2,000 characters. Well, what would a keyboard look like in Japan? Well, there were some. They were mechanical, and they were big monsters, and, it took, and typing was very slow. So uh, the ability to do handwriting recognition directly and enter that information directly into a computer uh, we've set up a company. We actually had a spinoff from SRI called CIC, Communication Intelligence Corporation. But uh, there were other patents. There were crazy patents on, uh, we had one of our clients was an outdoor advertising company. There was a company in San Francisco and they moved out of San Francisco. And uh, they wanted to be able to update their billboards in real time. 
you know, say good morning to the commuters in the morning and good afternoon in the afternoon. That's our, not just plaster those signs up there for a year. So we, we had patents uh, on how to put color pictures on a, you know, 100-foot board. Uh, now, that, that didn't go anywhere. This wasn't video. This, no, this was no, not. It was a kind of a fast printing technique that would print billboards. Nobody's proud of that. How did your love for technology and innovation start? Uh, can you set a scene for, for how that began? Well, I grew up in the South. I was born in Alabama. I went to Georgia Tech for my first degree, for my bachelor's degree on the GI Bill. I got out of high school at 17, a year early, and uh, I didn't have any great plans or anything. A bunch of guys were going to join the Navy, and I almost joined the Navy. I actually did everything except get sworn in. I took the physical, I took the tests and all that sort of thing. But I had a technology bent even in high school. The physics courses and things like that seemed interesting to me. But at the last minute, I decided to join the U.S. Air Force, and I joined in 1948. I went through the basic training in Texas like everybody else, and then they sent me to radar school at Keesler Field, Mississippi, Biloxi, Mississippi. That's just intensive electronics morning to night all day, you know, for a year. And we studied all these different radar sets. I went to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, which is kind of a home base for me. And then in June of 1950, something happened. I was sitting in the, in the movie at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, come outside. And I, I walked outside, and they said, uh, North Korea has invaded South Korea, you know. And I said, so? <laughs> they said, well, get your stuff, because it uh, turns out in my radar school, I had sort of majored in the particular radar, the APQ-13, which was the bombing radar of the B-29. So everybody who had any talent in that particular radar was rounded up. And within a couple of days, I was on an airplane flying from Dayton, Ohio, to what is now Travis Air Force Base out here. Uh, it was called something else back then. And I spent a week or so at Travis, and then they took us by bus to Yerba Buena Island. That was the old replacement depot after World War II. And we spent uh, some time on Yerba Buena Island. I can remember walking 200 steps from the island up to the bridge. It's in the middle of the bridge, you know. And there used to be a train system on the lower deck, the key system train. And this is 1950. We would go up and catch the train to San Francisco. First time I'd ever been in San Francisco. And we'd wear uniforms, which meant if you went into a bar, you, you couldn't take your wallet out of your pocket. They'd line up to buy you a drink. You know, the war just started, big deal. Young GIs. By this time, I'm 19. <laughs> So when you're 19, you can do anything, right? So they put, put us on a ship to Okinawa, and my home base was uh, Okinawa in a B-29 base that was bombing Korea regularly. And I was the radar type, uh, doing keeping all those 50 or 60 B-29s going from this particular radar that I was an expert in. We set up a radar shop and did all that. And I was promoted private first class, corporal, sergeant, staff sergeant, just boom, boom, boom. And... Uh, I signed up for three years, and at the end of three years, I got a letter from President Truman saying, you know, you've done a good job. You can do one more year. So everybody, because the war, the Korean War, so we all, we all got extended uh, for a year. Uh, and so I stayed over there uh, living in a tent on Okinawa uh, for two years and then uh, came back in 52 and got discharged and started to Georgia Tech on the GI Bill. Graduated in 56. Yeah. 
you hear about uh, folks who are in the military and having to roll their sleeves up and putting things together with chicken wire and bent nails and all that sort of thing. But did that make you a better engineer, do you think? I think it really did. And uh, it made me a lot better student uh, because I had four years of, of military training and work with rolling up the sleeves when I was a freshman at Georgia Tech. So I, ha- I was 21 or 22, something like that. Everybody else was 18. So my competition was right out of high school, and they uh, were spent their time learning how to drink beer, <laughs> and I already knew. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I had a tremendous advantage in school. And, you know, I thought nothing. I'd just work all the problems in the book. That's just what you did. So it was a fairly pleasant four years. I didn't have any great academic troubles at Georgia Tech, just straight through. Easy. I four point something. I don't know. It was a, I didn't have any problems. And uh, for some weird reason, Georgia Tech and Stanford had a close relationship 3,000 miles apart. I wanted to go to graduate school, so the guys in Atlanta said, go out to this town called Palo Alto. And so I came out, and I looked around. It looked pretty good to me. So I started Stanford. It was just the year after Stanford began its honors co-op program, which was a program that where companies in the area like SRI and Hewlett-Packard and Xerox and places like that could send students for graduate school and pay their tuition. So I joined SRI. SRI had hired a group of people just for that program, and I was one of them. Uh, there were five of us. So we went to, started going to Stanford. They gave us, SRI would give us time off and uh, that sort of thing, pay our, all of our tuition. So I went to Stanford for something like 12 years from, uh, from 56 to 68. I was in and out of Stanford. And so I got my master's there in double electrical engineering. And then I dropped out for a few quarters and then went back and plugged away, got into the Ph.D. program, and just went on and on and on taking courses. They don't let you do that nowadays, but I was just kind of chipping away, taking all the courses I wanted to take. You were the permanent student there for a while, huh? Pretty close to it. Well, somebody else was paying the tuition and giving me the time off, so uh, why not? (laughs) Where was SRI in the middle of all this? Because in the late 50s, Intel doesn't even exist. By the late 60s, we've got Moore's Law, and we've got a trajectory going. Where is SRI in the mix in all this? Well, uh, let me back up a little bit. SRI started in 1946, right after the war. And uh, a group of industrialists, a group of Stanford people all got together and said, let's have a, we need a research base because a lot of industry is moving west. So uh, the idea was we need a research organization to support western industry. Our logo in the 50s was this little thing that's showing the western states, you know. So we were to provide research services for western companies. And Hewlett-Packard was a big client of SRI. SRI developed all kinds of things like microwave parts and bits and pieces and stuff for Hewlett-Packard. Then, you know, Hewlett-Packard eventually set up Hewlett-Packard Labs, which is probably bigger than SRI, you know, so, and a lot of companies did that. So SRI then, not so slowly, began to reach out. So we'd start doing work for East Coast companies. And uh, one of the principles at SRI was a a vice president by the name of Gibson, and the Hoot Gibson, they called him Hoot Gibson. And he was a great big guy. He used to hold the chains in the football games. He held the chains on the Stanford end of the football games. He's the guy who really pushed the international direction. So he would run around the world and talk about SRI. So we'd start to get a client here in Japan or in Saudi Arabia or somewhere, you know, all around. So he pushed us in the international direction. You know, SRI was a department at Stanford when I went there. And it was that way until 1970. 
and uh, the Vietnam War, all those days, student uprisings and things like that. Before that, the board of directors of SRI was the board of trustees at Stanford. So they were just overlap, you know, just one organization. They separated it at that level. So SRI had its, got its own board of directors. Stanford had its board of trustees. But all the day-to-day connections, the students going back and forth and the project, joint projects and things, that all continued. But SRI became an independent, nonprofit research corporation in Menlo Park. So that was a, a real separation with Stanford, all because of the students in the end of the Vietnam War, 68, 69, 70, along in there. Um, and those were very interesting times, I'll tell you. you know, uh, some rock throwing back and forth. Mostly it was peaceful. There was a lot of talk, a lot of meetings. The students had a point. They said, you know, the, the purpose of a university is to teach. And if you develop something and you classify it and you can't talk about it, that's not what a university should do. So work like that shouldn't be at, at Stanford. Well, they thought that you were probably, what, developing weapons? and That's exactly right. They, they just didn't know you know, what we were doing over there. We were over there curing cancer, and they think we're killing babies. <laughs> so, so the, but I think the students were right. Uh, they thought, uh, you know, they didn't want classified work on the campus because the purpose of the university is to teach. So they did that. They moved the labs that were part of Stanford where they were doing this military work. They moved them to SRI. And, uh, and I, as far as I'm concerned, the students were right. Now, my own particular work was almost 100% commercial, either commercial or from those pieces of the government that are not military, like NASA. We did a lot of work for NASA, satellite stuff. We did a lot of work for the National Institutes of Health. All the bioengineering stuff begins as grants from the National Institutes of Health. We develop technology, and then we go out and license it or find companies to support it, that kind of thing. So let's go through the process for a, uh, a project. Let's say NASA has you do some work for them. Do they literally come to you and say, here are some challenges that we have, here's an obstacle, here's a problem we want to solve, or they just throw it in your lap and say, you guys solve it, here's some funding, and then you're off and running? Is that essentially how it worked? That's one way that it works. Uh, and that's a big way. They they put out uh, they put out uh, the whole federal government puts out requests for proposal. You know, big documents that go out once a week or something like that, and you can respond to those. Now you compete f- for all that stuff. The the other way is we have an idea. You know, SRI has an idea uh, that may relate to satellite TV, for example. So we write a proposal, send it to NASA. Without they they haven't asked for it, but we start them thinking about it. And we start a year or two ahead of time because it takes them that long to work it through the system. And so we got funding from NASA. from The, Na- the National Institutes of Health almost always uh, works that way where I'm on a grant to look into ultrasound for medical applications. And I'll put a team together and we'll look for three years funding, you know, for half a million dollars or something like that. And then they do a site visit. They send experts, not just their own people but experts in the area, in the field, and send them to inspect you and look, look over and go over the plan, what you plan to do, who the people are and all that. And if you pass all that test, then you, you, get, a, you get your grant funding. So it, it works both ways. A lot of times a company comes in. One of the biggest projects that SRI ever did was, was about the time I started. And the project probably started in 50 or 51 before I was there. And that was the project called IRMA. E-R-M-A, Electronic Recording Machine Accounting. It was the first computer for banking. It was developed by SRI for the Bank of America in San Francisco. And uh, 
back in those days, of course, the population of California is growing exponentially, you know. They were processing checks by hand. You know, the checks that would come into the bank, a clerk would sit there and read off the account number, read off the amount, and type it into a machine. And that's not fast, especially when you're getting 50 million checks a year or something like that. You just can't do it. You know, there just aren't enough clerks. So Bank of America came to SRI and said, uh, help us solve our problem. So they built a whole computer. It took four or five years. In fact, that project was still going when I was there in 56. It was kind of on the way out. It sort of was finished by the time I got there. But the the net result in 2012 is if you take a check and look at it, those crazy characters across the bottom, that's magnetic ink. And it's a character that was designed to be easily read by both humans and machines. So a magnetic reader reads that and enters the data automatically, and you can read it easily. You know, you can see your account numbers and stuff like that. Uh, MICR, Magnetic Ink Character Recognition, was developed at SRI in that project in the 50s, and it's still exactly the same today. So when you first walked into the doors at SRI, what were you charged with? What were you supposed to do? Well, that's a good question. First of all, they told us to really focus on school. You know, you want to go over there, make good grades, learn everything you can because they're paying for it. So there was an emphasis on the schoolwork, and they gave you plenty of time off. We would bicycle from uh, SRI Menlo Park to the campus, push our bikes across the railroad bridge at the creek. But my job assignment, right away, it, it was more of a training program where they'd circulate you around through different labs, and you'd just look around and see what's going on. My first real project that I got involved with was probably high-speed printing. They were developing a high-speed printer for the A.B. Dick company. And it's interesting, they, the ultimate customer was Life Magazine back then. Life Magazine at that time had a circulation of $10 million per week. And uh, they had big high-speed color presses to print the magazine. So we were charged with coming up with a new way to print the label. Now, that's two square inches on the front of the magazine. That sounds trivial. <laughs> but however, you got to remember, the magazines are all the same. The labels are all different. They're no two alike. So you've got to print 10 million labels in a week and then start over. So 10 million labels a week means 250,000 labels per hour. The job was being done by 36 mechanical printers, a big room full of clanking mechanical printers. They knew about the new things that were coming along. Xerox was beginning to talk about non-impact printing and that sort of thing. So we developed a system that we call Videograph, and and it ultimately became the label printer for uh, Life magazine. And they, they were headquartered in Chicago, and the A.B. Dick company made the printers and so uh, so we'd commute to Chicago in those days. That was really my first project. And I had a couple of patents that came out of that, patents that have long since expired. Uh, but it, that got me into that mode of kind of thinking and inventing and uh, that sort of thing. And teamwork, you know, it was everything at SRI was a team. And, and that's why SRI was such a fantastic place to work. Because, you know, if you needed a chemist that knew about paper chemistry or you needed a physicist or you needed this or that or an economist or something or a market study, just bring, grow out and grab them and put them together. That was the great strength of SRI is this multidisciplinary stuff. 
Put us in the, into the mind of, uh, of an inventor. I mean, I think of Beethoven, you know, taking walks in the countryside and suddenly tunes just come to him and, and suddenly, you know, he's got a symphony that he goes back yeah. and, and he works on. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's maybe the romantic way of thinking about yeah. it. But what was your process like? Well, it's interesting. There, uh, invention comes from a lot of different ways. I, I almost believe that the way to cause people to invent more, to be more innovative, is to get out of the way. To, in other words, make it comfortable, set a bunch of smart people together in a room, keep the coffee hot, and get out of their way. Don't bug them. You know, remove, the, remove uh, any uh, barricades to invention, uh, you know, such as, oh, that won't work, you know. <laughs> so uh, as I saw more and more inventors at work, I, I sort of believe that there are two kinds of inventors. One of them is a Doug Engelbart who is working on something else. I mean, he wanted to interconnect the world with knowledge workers through computers, and this was in the 60s, you know, I mean, way back. And he would run into a problem. He would stop and invent a solution and then go on back to the big problem. So he was a necessity as the mother of invention, inventor. (laughs) That was Doug. Uh, And he invented the mouse and he invented a few other things. He actually created the desktop motif for a computer that everybody uses today. Now, the other kind of inventor, and there's a few of them around. In fact, I'm having lunch with one tomorrow, uh, Al Makovsky. He was a compulsive inventor. You'd walk out the door with him, and he'd grab the doorknob, and he'd say, why did they make it round? You know, if they made it triangular, it'd be easier to turn. You know, it wouldn't slip out of your hand. You know, everything he looked at <laughs> was something that you could probably do that better. He couldn't turn it off. He has probably 150, uh, 200 patents right now. Some of them are better than doorknobs. We were sitting around having coffee once, and one of the guys is reading a document. He says, did you know that in the human eye, 90% of the ultraviolet light is stopped by the first layer of the corneal cells? You know, and Al gets this glassy look on his face, and he says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. He says, we'll go to a slaughterhouse, and we'll get all these cow eyes, and we'll strip off the corneas. We'll grind them up with a little lanolin or something like that. We'll have the world's best suntan lotion. (laughs) Now... That's what I call a compulsive inventor. By the way, that idea is still available. (laughs) You know, Billy Joel once said that in writing songs, they're like children. He said some children grow up to be great and wonderful, and some children are just, you love them, but, you know, same thing with patents? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Some of them are, uh, you know, one of the chemists at SRI invented what I thought was a fantastic idea. He had a way to package meat products. Um, so that they would last for years without spoiling. And he took the fat off the meat and he ground it up with whatever his chemistry magic was, and he sprayed it on the meat. And the, it was controlled such that the, a little bit of oxygen could get through, not enough to support the aerobic bacteria, but enough to keep down the anaerobic bacteria. So, it, uh, so both types of bacteria couldn't live on the surface of that meat. So he, they did some tests. The meat would last uh, six months, you know, just like it had been in a freezer, you know. And that never went anywhere, and I'm not sure why. Uh, he was working for one of the big meat packing companies, and uh, it's a patent that didn't go anywhere. On the other hand, a friend of mine named Bill McCurdy had an idea in uh, Southern Pacific Railroad was one of our big Actually, some of their, I think they, some of their senior executives were in on the founding of SRI. They, they were closely related. We did a lot of work for them. Um, he had an, an idea that when train cars bump together in the switching yard, things get broken. 
You know, they, the way they switch trains, they run them over a hump and let them coast down and bump into another car and put together whole trains like that. They, uh, <laughs> they were breaking the dishes. So Bill McCurdy, the mechanical engineer, said, why don't we take the couplers on the end of the cars and connect them under the car with a damping kind of a gear that would absorb the shock? So that was called hydrocushion, and every train in the country used hydrocushion. And Southern, it was a project for probably $50,000 at SRI. And Southern Pacific made probably $50 million every year licensing the patents out. I mean, it's a tremendous payoff. See, that was, a, that was one of the kids that grew up well. <laughs> you just never know. What was Silicon Valley like? Um, you were at SRI in the late 50s and then through the 60s. What was your experience in Silicon Valley as a hub for technology? Well, the expression Silicon Valley came along later. In fact, in, at breakfast this morning, I was talking to a friend. Where, when did the term Silicon Valley come along? And uh, nobody really knew exactly. In 56, a lot of companies were, like Ampex was in Redwood City, and there were telecom companies in San Carlos and up that way. That was Hewlett-Packard always, one of the big ones in Palo Alto. But Lockheed hadn't moved their stuff up here yet. The missile systems division was still down in Burbank or someplace like that. And then the semiconductors weren't being built yet. I mean, that was just invented. The first course I ever took that had the word transistor in it was at Palo Alto High School. They had an adult education course in 56 where they were teaching engineers about these little things called transistors. So Silicon Valley, as it more went south, you know, Intel and uh, Shockley came along with the Shockley Semiconductors, and that broke up, and then some smart guys uh, started up Intel, and, and then it got more chip-oriented, you know, as Intel grew. That's where the silicon came from. Before that, there was nothing magic about silicon. In fact, the, the early transistors were made of germanium. <laughs> How to think of germanium valley. <laughs> When did you retire from SRI? 1994. But uh, um, in the 80, uh, so I became a division vice president somewhere back there, and I was, I was in that job for five years. And the next job up would be senior vice president. And the senior vice president for engineering at SRI is expected to be on the Army Science Board, on the Defense Intelligence Research Agency, whatever it's called, you know, you're expected to do all that Washington stuff. And that just was not my bag. So I, I didn't, if they'd offered me the next job, I wouldn't have taken it. I wouldn't, I wasn't qualified for it, first of all. I didn't know any of the classification stuff, you know. I mean, I had a secret clearance or whatever to just dabble in some of these projects. But uh, it just wasn't my kind of job. I mean, uh, they had much better people. That's the best way to put it. They had a lot better people than me for that job. So I had, I'd been in this job for five years we'd done done well got promoted and you know all that stuff and making money but then along came this opportunity to spin off a company and go do something with it so I actually uh, I didn't resign I took a leave or something like that from SRI when I went to Japan uh, and we set up CIC Communication Intelligence Corporation the handwriting recognition system when you look at the technological world as it as it is right now where do you see things going? Well, you know, that's interesting. And, and you can phrase that question in a slightly different way, if I may. Uh, a, a, a kid, a high school kid or a college student comes to me and says, what do you think I should major in? What do you think I ought to focus on? It's the same question, you know. It, it's like saying, what do you think thing, where do you think things are going, you know. And uh, for, for years and years and years, I said, boy, no electronics. You get a lot of mathematics. you got to have that 
get enough physics to know what you're talking about. And elect, focus on electronics because that's the wave of the world, which was true for a long time. It's true at different levels. It's true for the chip maker. It's true for the, you know, the system engineer all the way. Uh, I don't say that anymore uh, because the way things are changing now, if I were to tell a kid, you know, if you really want to get into something that you're going to focus on for the next 30, 40 years, you know, as a professional, uh, have some good electronics. That's nice. That's good. Get some of that. But get more chemistry. Uh, let your chemistry lead you into biochemistry and focus on the biological aspect of all this, medicine. That's, that's the wave of the future. It's something we always have to have, we always need. Electronics things now are becoming commodities. You know, I, I go buy a computer. I mean, if I pay $800, I can buy a reasonably good computer. Um, so it's a commodity, and it's not, I don't think as much fun in, uh, in building commodities. <laughs> but there's an awful lot coming. You're talking about brain research. You know, that field is just brand new. I mean, from what's going to come from there, it's really a new field. They're learning every day. You pick up the paper and you see something new. That's my way of uh, answering your question. <laughs> well, Earl, thank you so much for being on Silicon Minds. Well, I'm very happy to be here. It's fun to talk about this stuff. We interviewed Earl Jones where he still lives in Silicon Valley. He says he misses inventing, but his love for nature has grown. These days, you might run into Earl near the beach at the Año Nuevo State Reserve, leading groups of nature lovers who go there to see the elephant seals raise their pups. And the inventions at SRI are as interesting as ever. One of the latest, in a collaboration with Northwestern University, a way to remember long passwords. Silicon Minds is a production of Connected Social Media based in Palo Alto, California. You can hear other episodes of Silicon Minds on iTunes. I'm Jason Lopez. Thank you for listening.